American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre. These seminars are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. This is one in the series of seminars that are based on what it is to work in the theatre. We've heard from the performers, we've heard from the playwrights and the directors, we've heard from the production, the production of Big River, how it came to Broadway. And today it is everything that brings the magic to the theatre, makes it all come alive. This seminar is on the Joseph Meharan Foundation Awards, which goes to people in the lighting field, the costume, and the design, the scenic part that makes magic in the theater. I'm very pleased to be able to present Joe Meharan today. There are a lot of people that do know that just the name of Joe Meharan who gives out checks to people who have won awards, but I remember when there was a time that not a piece of fabric nor a costume nor a scenery could be done without going to Joseph Meharam for their tissues, for their fabrics, and for their colors. And so I'm very proud to present Joseph Meharam, who is going to give checks out to the people who have won these awards. First, let me introduce Joseph Meharam, who is sitting right there. Would you take a bow, Joe? Next, Henry Hughes, who is a critic and member of the board of the American Theatre Wing, very fine friend and a very good eye. Henry, would you please stand up? Twenty-one years ago, one of the most important scene designers in the field, Ralph Alswang, came to me and along with Alfred Stern, started the, uh, uh, and Joe Maharam, uh, uh, instituted these design awards. And uh, over the years, uh, our first judges were Harold Clerman, Mel Gussel, myself, A. Cook, and we were later joined by Pat McKay of Theory Crafts and Tish Dace, a who is the critic for the uh, London um, uh, uh, magazine uh, Plays and Players, as most of you know. Um, I think that the, these awards have been very valuable because we have, at the same time as we have been recognizing the household names in, in design, we have also been recognizing people who are at the earlier part of their careers who have done work that is equally distinguished. And the fact that we combine both of these in the, in, in the awards it makes it more meaningful. Anyway, I am re retiring as the uh, head of the Design Maharam Awards this year. 
and I'm handing over the administration to uh, Titch Dazed. And so I will do that now. Titch. Thank you, Henry. During the past 20 years, there really hasn't been a lot of suspense generated by the Meharam Awards. The winners already know who they are, uh, or how would they be on the stage here to receive their awards. And uh, a lot of people in the room when the awards are given already know who the award winners are. This year, we have a surprise award. The winner is sitting in this room, and the winner doesn't know about it. During the 21 years that the Meharam Awards have been given, the chair has been consistently Henry Hughes. He's had all the work to do. The judges have been able to have lunch at Sardi's and talk about who the nominees should be and fight about who the winners should be. And Henry has had to uh, uh, moderate and uh, intervene in some pretty heated discussions. Uh, he's had to contact the winners and you know, do all the sort of drudgery stuff to make these events happen. And therefore, the other judges have voted to Henry Hughes an award for his outstanding service for the recognition of theater design. Henry. This really is a surprise, and uh, I don't really believe very much in, in critics getting awards. Uh, we say so many nasty things about all of you, and the fact that they're all true doesn't excuse us. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'd like to ask Mr. Joseph Meharam to come forward and help me present these awards. first award goes to Lawrence Eichler for his lighting design for The Mystery of Irma Beth. Um, I want to thank you for this honor and for recognizing the contribution that lighting makes to the whole production. Thank you. We decided this year, um, in our wisdom or our foolishness, to present awards to the three designers on a show who had been working collaboratively together to achieve a coherent vision uh, of the essence of the show. So it's for that reason that the second award goes to Charles Ludlam for his scene design for The Mystery of Irma Vep. Thank you, Mr. O'Hara. Um, it's uh, wonderful to be appreciated, and uh, I don't know what else to say, but thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and uh, it will come as no surprise to, for, to, uh, to learn 
that the third award goes to Everett Quinton for his costume design also on the Ridiculous Theatrical Company's production of The Mystery of Irma Vep. Thank you very much. I, I'm very grateful to get this, and I, I've wanted it for so many years. <laughs> Thank you. What? Several years, yes. He's been nominated before. Um, our second show to be so honored is Nosferatu, uh, which was produced at La Mama. It was uh, directed and conceived by Ping Chong and done by the Fiji Company. And the first award to that show goes to Mel Carpenter. Is someone going to accept the award for Mel? I understand that she couldn't be here today to accept it. Uh, on behalf of Mel, I'd like to thank the judges and Mr. Maham, Mr. Hughes, who uh, said only nice things about Nosferatu, and also uh, on behalf of Ping and the Fiji Company, that it's very gratifying to be so recognized, you know, at this time particularly. Thanks very much, and I will see that she gets it. <laughs> And second, um, Angus Moss for his uh, scenery design of Nosferatu. Thank you very much. It really is a pleasure to be recognized. And uh, I'd like to just say thanks for all the uh, techies out there who make this stuff possible. Thank you very much. I can't say. I'm sorry to interrupt. Hasn't, doesn't anybody want to say anything that with this award goes a check that this is a very important thing. There are many awards, but Mr. Maharam gives uh, each one a check. Yes. Well, <laughs> I do. I think I that's, do, and I think I, it's very I important I thank you for, for in, interrupting. Um, in fact, the, the monetary part of the award, uh, we know that the scroll and the honor are very important because we know that all the designers list the fact that they've won Meharam Awards and list the fact that they've been nominated for Meharam Awards. But the, the monetary part of the award is important. In fact, Henry tells me that Peter Larkin, when he accepted his award, said, I'm going to use this check to reconnect my telephone. Uh, and sometimes these awards are actually for the off-off Broadway show with a very small budget, actually larger than the fee the designer was paid or the design budget that the designer had to work with. So uh, thank you for doing that. Uh, the third award uh, to the Fiji Company goes to the lighting designer known as Blue. And it is for Nosferatu and Nuit Blanche. Thank you. Um, I've done a lot of shows for no money, but I think this is the first time I've ever been paid twice for one. So, uh, you know, that's kind of nice. Also, it's nice uh, that Nuit Blanche was mentioned. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. The third show... Uh, you've already been hearing about some today. It is Big River, and the first award 
goes to Heidi Landesman for her scene design. I think it's wonderful that these uh, designs are given to all three designers in the production because really in, in the case of our show it, it shouldn't have worked any other way and couldn't have worked any other way. So I thank you for doing that and I, I thank my other designers too for their help. Thank you. The second Big River Award goes to Patricia McGurty for her costume design. This award is much appreciated, and I think one of the things that Mr. Maharam's generous award does afford a lot of us designers is uh, to enable us to buy tickets to go and sh see shows in New York, which is what I'm going to do. Thank you. Thank you. And finally, but as they say, by no means least, Richard Rydell for the lighting that, that made the costumes and the set in Big River look so wonderful. I'd like to thank Mr. Maharam for establishing these awards. I think it's uh, a wonderful uh, opportunity to hear about design work in New York City. Thank you very much. Well, I give monetary awards because I have, which we're doing for about, I'm doing for about 20 years. I don't deserve really much thanks for it because I used to be in the theatrical fabric business and boy we did business with all the producers from Ziegfeld down to the present day and our name was in programs and when I go out to a show with my wife she turns to the page where the credits are she says, Joe there's your name in there. <laughs> well, uh, I was going to say something else, yes, I, I say the reason I give monetary awards, did I say this before? is because I say you can't eat a statue, you can't eat a plaque. <laughs> Thank you very much. We're continuing the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre. This seminar is based on the Joseph Maharan Awards, which is given to the theatre and the, for the scenery, for lighting and for costumes. The people who have won the awards are here now and we hope that we'll have some form of discussion that will tell us how they arrived at the, st at the stage that they are, what brought them to it, what their background is, and also how nice it is to receive an award from Joseph Maharam. Would you like to continue this now? Who's going to start? We are attempting to honor a group of theater artists for their collaborative expression of the vision of the play. And I'd like to start by asking Angus Moss and Blue, designers from Ping Chong's Nosferatu, um, you know, how they achieved those effects. Uh, the show, it, 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 perhaps you've seen the horror movie, the vampire movie, Nosferatu. Well, this is the contemporary trendy Soho, New York version of that film. Uh, the yuppies in the, in the play are the living dead. And you, the, the play begins with angels in combat. 
and there are these spectacular angel costumes. And then we move to this trendy New York apartment um, with chic costumes, the sort of things that, that yuppies wear, I'm told. And, <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, suddenly the, the apartment is invaded by skeletons and devils and very strange creatures engaged in uh, carnal activities, shall we say, and riotous uh, uh, pursuit of pleasure. Uh, by the end of the show, the uh, apartment's um, uh, back uh, has, uh, the, the back wall has vanished, and we are in some subterranean depths from which a monster emerges. So this is a very challenging show to designers uh, because they've got to uh, show us something that's at once contemporary and realistic and quite otherworldly and spooky. Uh, and I'd like to hear how they went about responding to that challenge. Blue? Um, well, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a real easy question. Um, well, to be honest with you, what happened is Ping, when Ping is working on a show, idea-wise, he's working on two or three shows at the same time. So it's like if you've been working with him for a while, he'll be talking about, oh, the bestiary piece. That may be two or three years before it comes about. But, you know, it's like every time we meet and we get together, you know, and it's a social situation, we'll talk about ideas and things. So Ping will start off by saying things to me like, oh, yeah, well, I want this scene to happen where the whole stage is an ocean and, like, a volcano comes out of it and then the volcano starts erupting and it forms an island and then it's populated. You know, it's like that's the level he's talking on all the time. So I've learned, you know, over the years just to, like, let him talk. And then when we get down to reality and it's budget time, say, hey, look, you know, if we fill the space with water, you know, it's going to cost, you know, this type of thing. <laughs> so it's, it's more a thing of, like, you know, tuning into his vision but trying to really translate it into reality. So the room he built for Nosferatu is not dissimilar from two other sets we did. I mean, there were many variations, and this room was much more sophisticated. But he got it hung up on box sets, three-wall box sets. So we'd had a little experience. We'd done two shows already lighting them that way. Well, this one was a little different because it had some tricks and stuff to it. So I went ahead and hung all the lights that I had rented and all the lights I had available. And I did the focus, and it didn't work. It was a disaster. So that night, after we took a look at what we had, we had to rehang the ceiling, finally, you know, get the whole thing into a plan B. Because it was like what we were shooting for for plan A just was not feasible with the equipment and time we had. And then when it finally we get a plot in, which is, you know, my imposing some kind of structure on what I have to work in and the physical space I have to light and what kind of variations we're looking for, he and I sit down and we cue the show. You know, he tells me the feeling he's going for and I try to translate out of the elements of my plot that I have how to give him out of what I have available, you know, the best shot I can at, you know, what, what his vision is. And somewhere in between those two realities, you know, his fantasy and what the reality of my plot is, we create what we end up with. You know, some cues, the minute you see them, you go, that's it. You know, everybody in the house goes, that's fine, that's perfect. But a lot of them are like, well, this is the best we can do, so we'll, we'll run it a few times, take a look at it, and if we can come up with a better idea, we will. So in terms of working directly with Ping, you know, it, it's, for me, it's pretty much that kind of situation. I've been working with Ping a little bit longer than Angus has, and a bit longer than Mel, so my relationship, I think, is a little more developed in that aspect. And it's nice, because there's a real stability to it. You know, I, I know, I know him as a person. I know, you know, his head and his sense of, you know, vision and that type of stuff. So it makes it a little bit more efficient to come up with what he needs. Well, unlike a Broadway show, you make changes uh, all during the run. Oh yeah, but I mean, I, previews on Broadway is pretty much the same thing, isn't it? 
to some extent. Yeah. Uh -huh. I mean, I think we have a little bit more latitude because we're not dealing with the same level of budget that a Broadway show is. So it gives us, you know, I mean, like at La Mama, for instance, if I want to hang a show starting at 10 p.m. in the evening, you know, I go into the building and I start at 10 p.m. and I can work until 4 or 6 in the morning or whatever the story is. I don't have the, the confines of union crews, you know, and how many hours these guys can work or only having the theater available to me at certain times. And, you know, for, for paying in the Fiji company, to all of us to a great extent, La Mama is pretty much, in some ways, as a theater, kind of home base because it's usually where we present the premieres of our bigger pieces. I mean, that's not to say Ping isn't doing other smaller pieces around. But even through virtue of having gone through that for four or five years now, now we know that space. So we also have that comfort. It's not the same as like you're walking into a house you've never lived before in your life. Angus, do you want to say anything about the about this? Yeah, about tell them how you made the set. Tell them how you made the set. <laughs> Actually, in terms of, uh, of Ping's ability to transfer to whether it's an audience or people he's working with, his vision and what it really what is that he needs defined for the audience, he's very good at it. He's very good. It's crystal clear. He tends to get a little far afield with his imagination. Lou mentioned budgets. Speaking of cash and you can't eat budgets, um, except for when they go over, then you eat them sometimes. Uh, he's a little carried away, so he has to be brought back into harness as to what can be accomplished in a given amount of time. This little box set they're talking about, you could fit this studio into, and that was one out of the three sets. So it wasn't anything small. And it was very similar, the physical set itself, in that it was a box set and he'd been using them before. And so for the first time, instead of having plasterers and plumbers and carpenters come out in gangs to create this, we modulated it. We built it into units so that it could be taken apart and used for his other shows as well, if need be, and shipped and stored and like that. That part of it was, um, I'm sure you're great grateful for the collaboration on that end of it. But uh, Ping is a dream to work with. He really is. He's an absolute dream. He doesn't have an ego problem. He's well-centered. And he has a marvelous sense of humor. I mean, you want to hug this guy all the time. He doesn't create problems. He helps to solve them. He doesn't hug anybody. <laughs> Charles, are you yes. a dream to work with? <laughs> well, well, that's Charles, Charles is described, but uh, that's your uh, Depends on what you ate before you went to bed. <laughs> <laughs> I want to I explain to, to all the people in the audience that Charles Ludlam wrote, directed, and played one of the two roles in The Mystery of Ermazeth, and Everett Quentin played the other one. They, they each played three parts. Um, so uh, he, he was by no means just a scene designer. And so the question, are you a dream to work with, actually takes on considerably more meaning now. <laughs> are you a prima donna, Charles? Well, it's hard if you play males and females because you also are the, uh, you know, have two identities. You mean you're schizophrenic? Well, no, prima donna is a woman, you know, and then there's also leading male. But uh, as far as a dream to work with, I mean, that's really someone else's opinion, not, you know. After you all described uh, Mr. Yes. But you want to start with me? Yeah, you but let's describe the show, Charles described. Well, it all began that I wanted to do a, a two-man show with Everett. And um, we wanted, we had, it went through a lot of permutations. We thought of maybe two 
one-act plays and to play male characters in one and females in another. Uh, then we thought that we could show our virtuosity more if the uh, males and females were in the same play. And I had often thought about doing a quick change act, which I had thought of as a, a, a solo show. But then I began to realize that multiplying the possibilities with two people doing quick changes, you could do a whole play um, with just two people playing all the characters. So the idea was to create a play that seemed continuous and didn't, ha didn't see, there were no gaps. It just uh, continuously went along and there was um, the illusion of a full cast of actors. So that was the uh, sort of challenge we set for ourselves. And uh, I wrote, as I often do, I write the play as we're rehearsing it so that actors get scenes as it goes along. Sometimes you get a plot outline at first so you know what scenes you will get, but they're not written. And then as one scene sort of starts to gel, then I'll add another scene, and you build it that way. It's very organic. So, so um, there was that problem. And then I designed the set before I wrote the play, because once I had an idea of the kind of play I wanted to do, I thought of a sitcom, then I decided that it would be Lord Edgar and Lady Enid Hillcrest and their servants, Nicodemus Underwood and Jane Twisden. And we would, I would be Lady Enid and Edgar, uh, uh, Everett would be Lord Edgar, and then I would be Nicodemus Underwood, the sinister butler, and Jane, uh, Everett would be Jane, the maid. So then we had the cast of characters, and we decided that these people live at Mandacrest on the moors, and it was a Victorian melodrama, somewhat gothic. <laughs> so then I desi designed the set because it was going to be very technical, mechanical. So we had to start from the mechanical device of the quick change and work backwards to the play that could be done with this device. Uh, a handy thing was that I used to do Punch and Judy, and in Punch and Judy there are only two characters on at a time. And you have to glove and unglove to bring the next character on. So I already had in my head a kind of a technique for this. Uh, then. Uh, I designed the set because we were going to have to we were going to have to live in that set, and um, so I thought about the things that one uses in such a set. But um, I remembered uh, from my childhood seeing the great McGibney on television, who was a um, a quick change artist who did a Oliver Twist all by himself in a set. And I remember he went through the fireplace, and Larry kept saying, "But." What, people don't go through a fireplace, and I said, but he did. But anyway, I got talked out of that, and we had the painting, and we'd use the painting, and um, a few other trick things, like a, a bookcase that slides back, revealing a cage, or uh, secret panels, and um, doors, uh, center door fancy that goes out onto the moors, and um, a door to the house, and so forth. And because of the timing on the quick change, since you walk out one door and almost instantly come back in as another character, the set had to be fairly small, which worked very well in our theater, which is a 143-seat theater. Uh, so the doors couldn't be too far apart because you had to exit slowly and grandly and then burst into a round change and you go in the next door. And uh, so I worked out all the devices, the physical devices that I associated with Victorian melodrama first, and then I knew that I would use them, but I didn't know quite how yet. But I knew there was always a bookcase that slid back. And it would be too late when I got to the third act if I wanted to use that to rebuild the set. So I had to think, let's have it there, because 
probably I'll need it. And sure enough, when it came to the conclusion of the play, it was the one thing I'd never used, and it ended up being the key to how the whole thing uh, raveled. Uh, so anyway, uh, so and then there was a painting, that, a trick painting. Larry, incidentally, also had a lot to do with building the set and masterminding the effects that we used. So then we proceeded to rehearse the scenes, wondering if we could really accomplish these changes, which was really Everett's uh, design problem to make costumes. Maybe you should talk about Yes, Everett, could you tell us how you designed the costumes so that they would come on and off so quickly and, and maybe say something about Charles turning into a werewolf on stage? Well, in the beginning, like before, he, he just, like we work with no script in the beginning. It's, it's an idea. And then we're just throwing these things back and forth. And then the first design thing was to realize that it had to be in a period with had, that had long dresses because we're underdressing the pants. And I thought unless we were playing little kids where the boys would wear short pants, it had to be Victorian and that was where it, that came from. And then it was, it's all Velcro and the, the dresses, are, well we have three people backstage and the show wouldn't work without them. And they, they should really be getting one too, but that's, <laughs> that's, uh, but you just come off and you break into a run and you're pulling as you're going and they're there and sometimes it's like a train like when they work something stage left everyone gets in a straight line and starts running to stage right to do the next thing um, and then I just thought that they should be very recognizable but I made some mistakes though but you learn that afterwards <laughs> if I had to do Never. it over again do, do two things differently. But, but with Charles turning into a werewolf, is a, an act, it's like an acting feat. Because I learned from him, with, he's, if he says it can be done, it can be done. Where I would say it can't be done. And I was saying, I can't, you can't do it, you can't do it, how can we do this? And then we just got the werewolf mask, and he just does it by doing it. It's not, they, when Larry, though, dealt with the lights and We'd do this flickering and this thunder and lightning. The lights would go. He distracts the audience. You cover a multitude of sins by turning the lights off for a second. <laughs> <laughs> but Charles just does things, though. It's if he says you can do it, and it's a lesson to be learned. Right? That as an actor, I'm coming to that, learning that if you want it done, just do it. Don't get involved in what the audience is thinking because you can trick them, and that's pretty much what he does with them. A lot of it is misdirection, which is a, uh, a trick in magic where you, uh, you know, you need precious seconds and we would rehearse this, uh, the costume changes over <coughs> and over again 20 times, you know, and it would be, uh, you'd always have two seconds that you couldn't cover. But the audience fills that. They laugh or they do something and sometimes you're even, even though the change seems instantaneous, you do have to wait before you enter because the audience is reacting. Sometimes. So they give you, sometimes, they give you precious seconds. The other thing is it's not all Velcro. Uh, I mean, there are other things the like there is a, a, a gown, uh, there's a, Lady Enid has a long robe with a train and a sort of undergarment, um, like a, what do you call it, a nightgown or satin white satin and the other is a plaid uh, gown with it and one you plunge into this way 
and they sort of fasten it here, and then you go back, and then the other thing, and one holds the other on. It's all just hanging there, but I mean, it does, they hold them. And um, it, the changes are down to the point that I have one button on my coat that I button, and the dresser dresses, the, you know, buttons the other button. So it's all simultaneous. Somebody's doing it. go very fast. As you go out the door, they rip your clothes off, and then the next person is on the end of the line waiting, and you plunge. Just one thing just rips off, and you plunge into the next one and through the door. And wigs and guns. And there are wigs, and but then there are props. False teeth. I wear a, a denture that I, uh, my dentist, uh, and I worked, this is an interesting design point, I think, um, that I, my dentist years ago told me that he could make me monster teeth if I ever wanted them. That would be very realistic, that he'd done it for films. So when it came time to do this, I always loved the uh, uh, Mr. Hyde teeth that, um, that uh, um, Frederick March wore. I thought they were extremely beautiful uh, teeth. So I went to film um, memorabilia shops, and they had every photograph of Mr. Hyde, left view, right view, above, below, with his mouth open. It was perfect. It couldn't have been like a medical study of those teeth. And I, brought, I bought these six or eight photographs and brought them to my dentist, who then began to work on this uh, denture. He, I said, these teeth are very sexy. He said, those are dog's teeth. <laughs> he refused to do dog's teeth, but he did do something a little strange with them, the way they played up, you know, because they're not fangs. They're a credible kind of tooth that is very uh, beautiful and strange and adds a lot to the impression when Nicodemus, you know, just moves his face slightly, the wolf thing starts to come out a little bit, you know. But the teeth always have to be waiting for me when I go from Enid. <laughs> but yes, I thought the Enid would be this face, but then with the wig, but then Nicodemus would look too much like Enid, so that's why I wanted the teeth. It changes my face completely. So someone always has to be holding my teeth, which go in, you know, quickly. Uh, Larry, <laughs> you had to create the effect of gaslight using electric light. How did you do that? Mm -hmm. uh, Primarily they're gelling in a honey kind of tone rather than straw or the, the yellowy kind of light to keep everyone pretty at the same time. But um, I think what, what I might comment on is that I sort of have to be the devil's advocate through all this and co be conscious of what time of day it always is from the script and from what's going on. Uh, besides the gaslight and the firelight, we also had starlight, moonlight, uh, torchlight. There was an endless variety that Charles wrote into the play, so, and lots of little French scenes with people going in and out. So there was a constant ability to get more bizarre as the play got more bizarre. And we go in an Egyptian tomb. Place. Very small. That's an advantage, actually. But we go into an Egyptian tomb. There's mm -hmm. a, inside a uh, sarcophagus and the, the mummy and all that, and that was another lighting. Starlight, moonlight to torchlight. It was it also interesting. And that footlights. And footlights. We had special footlights, which were, became specials, because you mm -hmm. can't really light people. I mean, in that theater, it wouldn't have made much sense to light them with footlights. But the footlights were really special, so with a really um, saturated color on the gel, so that if you have a red moment, you can go to the red gel and play a red moment or a green moment or a blue moment. <laughs> There's also a wonderful trick uh, painting, uh, which is shot and bleeds uh, before your very eyes. But we don't want the ridiculous theatrical company to give away all of its secrets all at once. So I think we should move on to Broadway uh, with a considerably different kind of budget and scale uh, to the recreation 
of uh, Mark Twain's novel, Huckleberry Finn, and, uh, and this incredible sense of the Mississippi River, a uh, really extraordinary sense of it without going to, to quite the uh, length of putting a body of water on stage. Um, how did the three of you work together on that? Heidi, you're one of the producers of the show. I just have a sense that you may have had slightly more control than a scene designer usually does in a Broadway show. Well, you know, not, not too much more because um, I, I had to be very careful about switching hats because who was I working for after all? The director or myself or the production? Or, uh -huh. And it became a very, very tricky line to tread. And in fact, when uh, I would make comments that I would normally feel very comfortable making as a designer, I held back because they would be misinterpreted coming from a producer. So it, it became a, a very tricky situation. But we, um, the, the whole notion of the river and the riverbanks came because we've done, this was the third production, and Richard joined us on the second, so it really was a, a long uh, process that was developed very slowly, and we, we sort of learned during the process, what we were doing and where we wanted to take it to. So we, uh, we first did the show at the American Repertory Theater in Boston, and then we did it at the La Jolla Playhouse in La Jolla, California. And um, just in listening to the other folks talk about their shows, uh, besides in Nosferatu, uh, dealing with the vision of Ping Chong, we had the vision of Mark Twain to realize, and that was certainly a great responsibility because his um, his prose is so beautiful and he realizes the images so clearly that um, there was a great deal uh, for us to rise to in, in bringing this to the stage um, and that was indeed was a, a tremendous challenge, and I think that that's really what we worked from, is being true to the novel and um, trying to bring all of the sense of excitement and journey that the novel had to the stage. Um, in designing the costumes, what was your biggest challenge in trying to realize the, the, the Mark Twain uh, novel? Was there one moment when you sort of said, this isn't going to work, what am I going to do? Well, you know, it, after a while, the, it can be off-Broadway or on Broadway or whatever, but sometimes things never change. Charles, again, you know, it's 18 actors becoming 123 characters, mm -hmm. and once again, there, it's about teeth, and it's about wigs, and it's about clothes, and it's about all those people backstage running around, making it all happen. Um, and I think a lot of it is just develop getting all of that uh, put together and making it work for the audience. Uh, I think that was probably the biggest challenge is making all of that, pulling all of that together. We, so We were lucky. I mean, we were able to make huge mistakes out of town, basically. Mm -hmm. well, we, in, in Boston, we did the whole show in, in sepia, and it was just like taking a mud bath. We were bored, the audience, I think it was visually very boring. But we got to try it out. And we learned that we move on down the line and, and keep that basic notion of that kind of, of overall color, but, but really punch it up and, and bring much more life to it, which we proceeded to do in incremental steps. 
from the California production to Broadway. And Richard, I think, probably did the same thing with his lights or something similar. Right. It was uh, it's, uh, wonderful when you have a chance to do it uh, in one place and then start over again the next place, especially when you're dealing with as many lights as you usually deal with in a Broadway production. You don't uh, always have that much flexibility once all that rig is up there. So to be able to go into New York having done it in a similar situation before was of great advantage. Uh, but I think the, the key for the lighting, uh, one, of, one of the things that I kept thinking about was trying to remain as flexible and fluid as possible for as long as possible because uh, Bill Houtman would rewrite scenes constantly, uh, Des Magnum would restage them, and this would go on through previews, just like in you know, those uh, But of course, the, the ability to move the machinery at the O'Neill Theater to make the changes happen is a little different than uh, in a more um, manageable space uh, with uh, fewer restrictions. Uh, so uh, I must say, to a credit to the, the crews at the O'Neill, um, it never became a problem. They were extremely adaptable to most of the creative changes that were necessitated by the changes in script and music and staging. Uh, suppose you decided to light Big River in mostly steel blue and a little surprise pink, and you tried it on the show, and it turned the set chartreuse and the, the, the actors chartreuse. Since the costumes have already been uh, built, since this, uh, the set has already been built and painted, is the lighting designer on Broadway always the one who has to compromise and change his own vision? No, you can look at it the other way. He's the one that can still change things. Um, oh, you get to rescue everything. Well, right? no, no, but you can. It's relatively simple to change color in lights, uh, taking one piece out and putting another. Um, it's harder to change direction of lights once they're all up there. Uh, but um, no, that ha I think that happens to most designers, is you find that certain things are working, certain things aren't working. I remember in previews, we changed the whole color palette of the warm colors in Big River, and I think it helped a lot, uh, change from a kind of straw to a more of a yellow pinky kind of color, but it helped a lot. It helped the costumes, it helped the set, it helped your eye. You could watch it a little more easily, I think, than you could. Um, but um, uh, lighting is, uh, you know, part of the designer's job, I think, a lighting designer is, is to mediate between all these things that are happening out there, between what's happening in the set, what's happening in the costume, what's happening on the stage, and to try to make it uh, uh, a piece uh, as much as possible in addition to trying to create a tone for each scene so that the scene has a certain kind of reality to it um, that is sort of sense. You can't describe it, you can sense it. Before I bring this very, very interesting discussion to a close, I'd like to call on Mr. Maharam to say something else. I'm sure there's more that you would like to say, more that you can say. And I think this is a time for you to do it. Well, Joseph Maharam. Frankly, there wasn't much more to say, and I had no, I, no intention of saying it, except I forgot to thank the important people that helped me all the way through this thing, or I couldn't have gone through with it, which is Mr. Henry Hughes, Mrs. Stevenson herself, and, uh, and the judges. So I want to express my thanks, and Alfred Stern, incidentally. All of these people have helped me every year with the presentation of these awards. Thank you. But there will be lots of questions to be asked, and, and uh, we're going to do that as soon as I say that I'm Isabel Stevenson, president of the American Theatre Wing, 
And these seminars are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. They are part of the year-round program of the American Theatre Wing. Thank you very, very much for being here.